I wanted to begin with talking about where we left Jonah. And uh, we had left Jonah. Um, we pick up Jonah where he was uh, sent overboard and splashing into the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up today. So Jonah was commanded, as we just heard, to go preach to Nineveh. And uh, he got up, but rather than head off to Nineveh and to Assyria, he made his way to the seaport of Joppa. And in Joppa, he boarded a ship bound for Spain. Having gone down to the coast and gone down into the bowels of a boat that was headed westward, a new journey for Jonah had begun. See, and after the voyage had gotten underway, as was read, the Lord sent this great storm upon the boat. And that storm was to get Jonah's attention, to sort of wake him up. And, and as we read, as the sailors, experienced sailors on deck were becoming more concerned with what was happening in the storm, Jonah was below deck fast asleep. So the prayer that the, the sailors turned to praying to, to all their different gods and to no avail. They even encouraged Jonah to join in, but Jonah does not pray at this point, time at all. So they decided to turn to the ancient custom of drawing lots, which we don't encourage. And uh, Jonah drew the short straw. And he understood that he was the one in disobedience. Uh, And knowing this, Jonah came up with a solution. The solution was just to throw him overboard. And not a solution that went well with the sailors. Well, Jonah did not care that much if the lives of the Ninevites perished. The sailors cared if Jonah was to lose his life. So they began to row ashore, or at least they tried. And there came a point, and we're not told how long, that they finally realized there was no way that they could outmuscle, outdig, outrow God to shore. So at that time, they, they, they conceded and they listened to uh, Jonah's instructions And that's exactly where we leave Jonah. That's where we find him. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You within Your Word there are are stories, true stories that speak to our lives today and to the situations we find ourselves in. We thank You that Your Word is sharp sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is meant to, to help us to discern and to understand. It's to convict us and to encourage us. So this morning, as we turn to your word, may you put us, help us to put aside distractions and focus on your word and what you have for us this morning. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Where I grew up, uh, after we moved out from the, from the city to the country outside of Hamilton, there were two creeks within walking distance of our back door. One was called the Boston, that was the closest one, and the next one over was the Mackenzie. And, and they created a nice little fork and then uh, a little bit bigger of a creek for us to enjoy. The forks of the creek were the favorite fishing spot. They were the best fishing spot in the, in the area. And every young man, it seemed, every kid my age, 
had a raft tied up somewhere along the shoreline right from the Grand River mouth right up past our place. Uh, we were fortunate. My older brothers, uh, they owned a, a, a canoe. So while we all had handmade rafts, they had a canoe. And as I got older, they let us use the canoe from time to time. Well, one March, it was mid-March, around March break, um, it was an early melt. And as the snow melted, the fields flooded and, and the creek got faster and it got wider and, and the forks kind of mushed together to this giant pond-like area. I decided that I would go out in the canoe with my cousin just a year older than me. And uh, we decided, you know what, there's lots of places to enter into the creek and exit again. We'll just have some fun. And uh, my mom was worried sick about us. So we spent most of Saturday going in and out, cutting along the rapids. And we had a great time, canoed home, put the canoe away. My older brother, who's a decade older than me, uh, Stephen wanted to go out the next afternoon after church. So we headed out again. Uh, we decided to go a little further upstream on, on the Mackenzie because the, the creek narrowed. The channel became very narrow. And with a narrow channel... Even though the field beside it was flooded, it was real white water. It was really flowing. So we got ourselves positioned in the neighbor's field. And all we had to do was clear the brush line and a few trees. So away we went. The issue, though, is we hit the fast water. The faster water picked up the fiberglass canoe and headed us right, in, headed us right into a fallen tree. Now, my half of the canoe made it past the tree, so I was out in the water. My brother's half never made it that far. It hit the side of the tree, and that fiberglass canoe just folded. I immediately went under the water, and I could feel the cold ice. Oh, did I tell you we didn't have life jackets on? Um, so I immediately felt the ice-cold water swirl around, and I can till, still to this day close my eyes and picture the water gurgling over top of me. I was under. When all of a sudden, I felt this thing hit me, and up I was, and, and within arm's reach to be able to grasp the tree that we just hit and pull myself out. What had happened is my older brother had the sense to take his forearm, lucky he didn't knock me out, come up behind and just go like this as he hung on. He caught me right in the crook of the neck, just enough to lift me up, and grabbed a branch. Stephen has been my favorite brother ever since. <laughs> um, so as Jonah hit the water when they hurled him over, I can sympathize what must have been going through his mind. That, that slow-motion feeling of the experience of the water engulfing around him. But the writer, the writer immediately assures you and I that everything's going to be fine. That, that Jonah would be safe. Look at chapter 1 at verse 17 with me. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17, we read this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, Jonah had yet to realize that he had an appointment and God was going to ensure that he kept that appointment. It was not missed. 
See, God continues this familiar role of pursuing Jonah, pursuing man. God still pursues man. This is such a wonderful illustration. We don't pursue him. It's the other way around. God pursues us. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, it's a much longer discussion, and we we don't have time to go through it, and it's almost paradoxical, but Scripture does teach human value to the human life. Let me just touch on that briefly before we move on. From Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, in our depravity, God still pursues us because you and I are image bearers of God. And then again from Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. See, God in his has said, you remember that word, right? Loving kindness pursues us in our sin. Romans 5.8 tells us that. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God pursues us for salvation. And then after salvation, he commissions us. From Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Or from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jonah too was commissioned. He was commissioned to carry a message. That message he chose to run instead of take it. And God pursued him. Now when we look at the text, there's a bit of a challenge here. And the challenge here is up to this point, most people would accept this story. But, but once we introduce the fish, the plausible becomes implausible. Uh, some assume the book is fictional. It's a, it's a whale of a tale. And if we were to remove the whale, the modern reader just might accept the premise of Jonah. Mark Yarbrough on his commentary states this, If you can believe by faith, that the Lord, by His spoken word, created the earth, the sea, and the galaxies of the universe, Genesis 1. And if we can believe by faith that the word, God, became flesh, John 1.14. And if we confess that this incarnate word lived, died, and got up from the dead, well, then we can certainly believe that the Lord has the ability and the right to create, design, construct, and form a fish big enough to swallow, contain, detain, 
incarcerate and transport his prophet how, when, and where he chooses to do so. The issue is that the progressive church in North America guts God of his divinity. Instead of an all-powerful God that created the universe, they make God into a God of their own image. They want a palatable God. One that gives them a good approval rating no matter what they do in life. They don't believe in absolute truth. The Word of God, the Bible, is God's reliable, infallible Word to us. Discredit the Bible, water it down, as some would say, and it loses its authority. And now you can choose what's right and what's wrong. That's one of the problems in our modern church. But it's important to remember that Christ himself, that Jesus himself, believed in the historicity of Jonah, referencing it as a historical fact in Matthew, in verses 39 through 41. So if God himself sees this as a historical fact, why do we have so much trouble? I often ask myself, when will those who call themselves Christians stop trying to explain away miracles? See, if we could explain away miracles, then we reduce God to the status of a magician who works with just a sleight of hand and not the creator of the universe, not the creator of all life. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, following our faith, following Christianity, following Christ demands some faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So our faith is a reasonable faith. It's, it's not a blind faith. There are more eyewitness accounts to the historicity of Christ than most ancient figures. The issue, though, is those who oppose a high view of Scripture begin claiming that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John either didn't write their respective books or too much time went by before they took pen to paper and so the Gospels are unreliable. And then with Paul's encounter in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, they they simply discount that and dismiss it. That way they can eliminate another eyewitness. But that's not true. Our faith is both reasonable and our Bible is trustworthy. So, before we return to Jonah, who is now in a fish, I want us to pause. I want us to look at a little bit of the craftsmanship of this book because there's some comparisons here. So follow along as I compare the first two chapters and, and some of the themes that the author's trying to that the author's communicating to us. So in chapter one, the focus is on the sailors. In chapter two, the focus is on the prophet. In chapter one, there's a crisis at sea. In chapter two, there's a, a crisis at sea. There's a prayer to Yahweh in verse fourteen of chapter one, and there's a prayer to Yahweh. In chapter 2. 
In chapter 1, there's deliverance from the storm in verse 15. Verses 3 through 6 talk about a deliverance from drowning. Then in chapter 1, there's vows and sacrifices offered to God in verse 16. Sacrifices and vows are promised, but not offered in chapter 2, verse 9. See, the structure gives us this great contrast between the two chapters. Yes, there is a crisis in both. Yes, there is an appeal to Yahweh. And He delivers. And then we see their responses. And interestingly, as we move through the book, we'll find out that the response of Jonah rings very empty. See, Jonah's caught by God, but does does God have Jonah's heart? He's caught, but does he have Jonah's heart? Is Jonah all that different than some of us today? Have we been caught by God, but, but God doesn't have our heart? There's a shift now. And, and, and the shift here in chapter 2 unfolds, chapter two unfolds from the perspective of Jonah. And, and the prayer that Jonah sends up is identical to what you would find in the structure of a Thanksgiving psalm. So, so verse 2 is going to serve as an introduction. Verses 3 through 6 are going to serve as a statement of, of crisis, of a past crisis. Even though Jonah's still in a little bit of a crisis, I'm not sure being in this belly of a fish is that great. And then verse 7 is, is a cry for deliverance. And then verses 8 and 9 are an acknowledgement of God's action and deliverance. So let's begin. Verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, from the belly of the fish. So the first verse sets context for us. And it's quite disgusting when you think about it. See, three days have gone by before Jonah prays. This is the second time we learn that he lifts his voice to the Lord. But he spent three days doing what? Was he conscious, unconscious? We're not told. But the text leaves no doubt to where he was in the belly of a fish. Now, was the fish a whale? Again, we're not told. But God wants us to know exactly where Jonah is. See, the Hebrew word for belly means internal organs, inward parts, bowels, intestines, belly. It was a dark, foul-smelling, damp place. And on the third day, he begins to pray. And as I said, verse 2 serves as our introduction. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse verse 2 serves as a bit of a recap for all that we're going to read. It's the first indication of Jonah crying out to the Lord and God answering. See, Sheol is a reference to the underworld, to the abode of the dead. If a person was going to Sheol, they were about to die. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's used figuratively to talk about uh, referring to a place of exile. So at first, Jonah thought he was going to die, we're going to, we will read. 
But then we learn that Jonah really is in a place of exile for a while. So Jonah is overwhelmed and he cries out to God. And as we work our way through the prayer, I'm going to make pauses here and there. And I want to pause to point out something that, that the casual reader might miss. So here is our first pause. In verse 2, Jonah quotes, or loosely but not word for word, from two Psalms. Psalm 120, verse 1. And I'm going to read the next one for you. Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Okay, I hit the play button again. So moving from the introduction, Jonah presents what his crisis is, what the distress is. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All the waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I look again upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. See, verse 3 is a statement of God's sovereignty. For you cast me into the deep. Now, if I was to think back to chapter 1, I would easily think, oh, wait a second, the, the, the sailors cast you into the Mediterranean. Or your sin, your disobedience was what caused you to be cast into the Mediterranean Sea. Both are true, but, but Jonah lifts back the veil a little bit. And as he lifts back the veil, veil, he sees that it's the hand of God, that God himself is at work. God is pursuing him, and he was responsible. God has said his loving kindness had not given up on Jonah. And God doesn't give up on, give up on us either. See, the gospel is a story, and it's a story of God's pursuit and provision for his creation. From the fall, God has unfolded a plan, and that plan was to redeem him, redeem us to himself. And that unfolds in Scripture. Well, Jonah continues to recount his experience of sinking into that watery grave, or what he thought would be his watery grave. See, the word flood can be translated as streams or underground streams. He recalls the water covering him. And as he continues sinking, he's going further and further from God. But yet he still had a sense of hope. Look at his words. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Now it's difficult from that just to understand. Does he mean he's going to see the temple in Jerusalem again? Or is he talking about the temple in the heavenly realms. And then there's this imagery, such as seaweed wrapping around his heads and going down to the roots of the mountain. 
Jonah's communicating the fact that he believed the end was near. So, so possibly he's indicating that temple was heavenly and he was soon going to be in God's presence. But then suddenly the story shifts. Look at verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Or as the New Living puts it, but you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. I'm going to hit pause again. Jonah Boris from the Psalter quoting a slew of passages here. He quotes from Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. He quotes from Psalm 42, 7. He also quotes from Psalm 5, 7, where it says this, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. He also quotes from Psalm 18.5, Psalm 116.3, and again, Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored to me life from among those who go down to the pit. Okay, play again. We pick up again in verse 7 at what is a transition point in the prayer. Jonah's cry for help. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What a beautiful verse. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah had this wonderful theological concept of prayer. Though written years after the event, Jonah understood Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beautiful. This is going to get annoying, but I'm going to hit pause again. Okay? Because verse 7 appears to draw on Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Okay, back to the prayer. Where again, we pick up in a transition point in the structure of a thanksgiving psalm. Jonah now acknowledges with thanksgiving his deliverance. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That verse is a little bit awkward to understand. Uh, but there's two plausible interpretations to what Jonah meant. And, and according to uh, theologian Jay Scholar, who's a Canadian who was born just down the road, highway a little bit in Cambridge, says this, Idolaters, whether Israelite or pagan, will miss their only true hope in steadfast love, which comes to those who cling to the Lord. That's one possibility. The second one is, Israelite idolaters have abandoned the covenant, have abandoned the covenant loyalty they should show the Lord. So either is possible, but I lean to the first one for two reasons. 
First, that word steadfast love or said is a theme throughout the Old Testament. And second, in chapter 1, it details for us and deals with the conversion of the Gentile sailors. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, your only hope is in God's said. See, it's that said that leads Jonah to promise to vow and a sacrifice to Yahweh. But once again, Jonah pulls from the Psalter. He pulls from Psalm one or Psalm thirty-one, verse six: "I hate those who regard, pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord." He also pulls from Psalm three eight: "Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people." And then Psalm fifty fourteen: "Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most." high and as Jonah concludes his prayer once again we're presented some irony see Jonah now arrives in a place where the sailors had already arrived you might say Jonah was late to the party so the Gentile sailors were convinced of God's power and they had humbled themselves before God days ahead of Jonah Jonah the prophet was late to that party. But God pursues, God disciplines the prophet like a father would a child. A gentle nudge to get them back on track. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he, whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights see for his disobedience Jonah deserves judgment but that's not what he gets God in his said in his loving kindness gives Jonah mercy and he delivers him it, it's a wonderful illustration of unmerited favor and that's how God works with you and I see God has set his love on us his unmerited favor even when we mess up, God still loves us. God still desires relationship. Nothing that you and I can do can separate us from the love of God. This is the grace that God shows us. And that grace should send us to our knees in worship. Grace should be the flavor of our every action. Having received grace in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, we should give grace to one another. Growing in Christ should be evidenced by how we treat each other. And unfortunately, the church today is not known for grace in our dealings with each other or with the world outside the church. And again, there's irony to be found here. Jonah had received grace, but Jonah showed very little grace to the sailors on that boat. And he showed absolutely no grace to the Ninevites. Rather, he had been both judgmental and selfish. You and I need to be salted with grace. Are we growing in grace for one another? When you deal with believers and unbelievers alike, do you show grace? 
Or are you known for your critiques and harshness? Growing in Christ means growing in grace. Before we close, one last pause. Why did I keep pausing? Why did I keep going back to show you that Jonah had all these references to the Psalter? I believe there are two truths to be learned from this. First, it's the need for us to be familiar with our Bibles. That includes Scripture memorization. Even if you find memorizing hard and you're lousy at it, you may never ever get it down word for word. But when you're familiar with the Scriptures, you, you begin to memorize concepts and you begin to understand theological truths that will be important for you in life. When life gets rough and and there are trials and you have to make decisions, then you will have this lens. And that lens will be through God's Word. See, it's God's Word become your glasses. And then you can get a sharper focus to what He would have you to do. Helps you to make the decisions and live the life that He wants you to live. There's another thing it does for us. It enriches our prayer life. See, when you know Scripture, you pray differently. You begin to pray according to the Scripture. And Jonah evidenced that with all his pulling in of the Psalter, that he was praying through Scripture. Scripture should influence how we pray for people. I know it influences me. So when I pray for my sons and my daughter-in-law and my granddaughter, I pray that they will learn to love the Lord intimately. I pray that they will grow in wisdom and knowledge and love. I pray that they will live His precepts. I pray that they will have opportunity to witness and to share the Gospel. And I pray that they will stand against the evil of this world. Scripture should permeate our prayer life. Secondly, when Jonah prayed through the Psalter, he was praying through the songbook of ancient Israel. Music is is powerful. Watch what you have a steady diet of. And I'm not looking for a debate over secular music or sacred music. I'm not looking for a debate on classical, pop, rock. I may take you up on a debate on country. But um, but what is the message? What is the message behind the music? Especially Christian music. A couple of weeks ago in the evening, we talked about the new apostolic reformation movement. Short form is NAR. It's false teaching. And it's become popular in evangelical circles. And the way it's gotten into churches is through music. Because music will teach theology. And they teach some very bad theology. It's promoted by Bethel Music and Hillsong. I'll just name them. Beware of what you listen to. Beware of what's teaching you. Learn to discern what you're being taught. Bad theology is found out of those two groups. They have some great 
they have some great music, the tune nice, but the theology is bad. There are still people today writing some great hymns, great gospel hymns with great truths to it. And, unfortunately, there are some bad hymns in our hymn book from yesteryear. But getting into the Word of God will help us to be able to discern what is good and what promotes bad biblical ideas. Music is powerful. Jonah both prayed from memorization of Scripture, but from their songbook. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we think of Jonah, Father, we ask that that as you pursue us, Father, if anyone is here this morning that you've been pursuing, Father, I pray that your Spirit will continue to work on their heart and that you will not give them rest. Father, if it's a need for salvation, that you'll continue to draw them and work in their lives. Father, that you'll continue to, to, to pursue until they respond to you. Father, if it's a matter of obedience, we pray that your spirit again will not give them rest until they turn in repentance back to you. Father, we thank you for the Psalter and the example that it is, the rich spiritual truths that can be found there. I want to thank you for those who write today beautiful hymns and music that contain spiritual truths that reinforce our values and reinforce your word. Help us to discern and to understand how powerful music can be. Father, we thank you and worship you this morning. We thank you that your has said, your loving kindness doesn't let us go. Like a father with a son or a daughter, you discipline and you nudge us back onto the right path. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for caring enough to send your son Christ to a cross to pay a penalty that, you, that we could not pay and to redeem us, to bring us into relationship with you. May our lives be seasoned with the grace that you have shown to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.